Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Stephen Charbonneau. I'm Associate Professor of Film Studies at Florida Atlantic University. I've been here for, my goodness, 17 years now, um, and I teach all across the film studies curriculum, but my focus is on documentary media and social change. I teach those classes at the undergraduate and graduate levels. Um, I'm also recovering from several rounds of administrative posts. So I was the graduate director for four years and then associate director for the School of Communication and Multimedia Studies for three years before that. So I'm in a bit of a lull right now recovering from those administrative tasks that are necessary, but um, but I'm I'm so pleased to speak with you, Toby. I I really enjoy this podcast. So, oh, thank you. I yes. really appreciate that. And I think the last time we spoke was when I visited Florida Atlantic. Yes, you were probably this was probably prior to these administrative tasks. Yes, for sure. Yes, off. I was a junior professor. Yeah. assistant professor when you were there yes right right, right. yeah prof i'd like to begin by asking you about what and there are so many ways of answering this of course what is currently preoccupying dynamizing interesting retarding troubling you yes so many ways to answer this question mm, um yeah you know Primarily, I think on a personal level, every day I'm troubled by what's going on in Gaza. I, I can't, um, it's it's constantly um, on my mind. Uh, but if I can connect it also to my professional sphere, mm-hmm. specifically the, um, the climate in my institution is particularly stifling around this issue. I don't want, I don't want to speak for other colleagues, but I know some folks have had to step down from an administrative posts um, because they've spoken out in favor of a ceasefire. So there is some real stifling, um, you know, pressures right now in my institution, in my state around that issue. I will say though, that in a way this is par for the course because as I'm sure you're not surprised to hear, Florida has been a stifling environment for educators for a little while now. Um, I, I, it's palpable in my department. It's palpable among the students, you know, discussing things relevant to or related to civil rights, social change, racial issues, racial justice. These are all, um, you know, it's, it's, it's dicey right now. So in a way, this is another extension of that. Um, I think that uh, troubles me. It fires me up though as well. I think what that has done is it's contributed to um, my own desire to understand my own backyard better. So in terms of research, um, I've really tried to um, pay attention to my backyard and what's going on in South Florida. And one of the things that should be dropping soon is a special issue of the Journal of uh, Media Studies edited by Mark Williams. He, a few years ago, invited me to write um, an essay reviewing um, a digital ar- digital archive of civil rights-themed news film footage um, held at the Wolfson at Miami-Dade College. So I've spent the last few years reviewing digitized news film um, in that digital archive, um, wrote an essay that should be coming out 
any day now, I think. Um, and so I'm really excited about that. Just reviewing the history of Wade-ins, civil rights actions um, in St. Augustine, Delray Beach, which is 10 minutes from where I live. So reviewing that history, connecting it to the present um, has been firing me up. Um, I'm proud of that work, but I also, again, talk, the, you used the word troubling. I think you said troubling. I think you did. That's a great word because I, I'm not satisfied completely too with that essay at the same time, if I can be completely honest. Um, I, I, I share the enthusiasm that a lot of historians have for these digital archives. So much is getting digitized and put online. Mm -hmm. it, it's exciting. Um, but at the same time, in reviewing that work, I began to question my own positionality in relation to the digital archive. I also start to worry about the precarity of that. Things can go away quickly. Um, and I, I felt too reliant on it, if that makes sense. So to, so what I'm doing now is I'm um, supplementing that research with more research that will involve connecting to local archives here in Delray Beach, um, speaking with archivists, also speaking with descendants of, or anybody who's still alive from the Delray Beach Civic League, which was a civil rights organization that was organizing um, around these wait-ins to challenge the segregated beaches. So, that's something that I was troubling with that was troubling me for a while was just relying on this digital archive, but also not connecting it to real people, real um, organizers, uh, local archivists talk to people. So again, that's always kind of the challenge with our research is trying to not just accept what is given, but to kind of push it a little bit further, if that makes sense to find that other level of context. I mean, that was one of the themes of, the book that Chris Robey and I edited was not settling for that media object, you know, and realizing that abstracting those objects from communities, from organizations, from practices is a misfire, you know, and so always trying to find that balance. So I felt like I got out of that balance a little bit with this article that's coming out, but I hope to supplement it with more that kind of, um, enriches that discourse if that makes sense i don't know if that makes sense but <laughs> oh absolutely yeah, and okay. i think there's something very important in what you say about uh, in two areas one this question of one's own position and two the question of the reliance on the digital uh, your first book uh, i think it's your first book projecting race yes right? yes uh, is a sign of your concern with those issues. And of course, your positionality in this is as an intellectual, a migrant, a white guy, presumably Francophone, Canadian Catholic yeah. background. That's yeah? my background, yes, for my grandfather. Yeah. I actually grew up in Washington State, so very Canadian adjacent. Uh, um, Canadian. But my grandfather was French Canadian. Yes. Right. So with, with that sort of heritage, yeah. It's it's a it's a it it's very unusual and for a long time the us civil rights movement was a great inspiration to 
Quebecois, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, there's a slightly, perhaps uglier cultural nationalism. But if I think back to the 70s, there were important consanguinities. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could just, sorry, this is a long-winded and slightly <laughs> phrased question. I wonder okay. if taking us back to that book, to Projecting Race, which is yes. about six six years ago, maybe more. Yeah, 2016. Yeah, it's... Um, so eight years now. Could you take yeah, us back to that years. book, Projecting Race, and talk a bit about your own subjectivity, but beyond that, what you encountered, what you uncovered, and what you sought to say? Um, the part of that book... What kicked me off on it was the, I hate to use the word discovery because I hate, I really have to give credit to Catherine Grew for foregrounding the salvaging impulse of film history that I don't want to fall into. And that keeping my positionality as the researcher central was sort of important to me, but also it, it rhymed with the, the histories that I wound up researching because the impulse for that book was a failed research trip to college park. And I didn't want to waste my time because I couldn't find what I was looking for. So I went wandering. And one of the things that I found was an unusual videotape. It was the tape that um, it had the term FOGO on the spine. And of course, I know the FOGO process and I was curious about this. And as I watched the tape, it was, um, it featured footage from, I think this was from the Farmersville Project from Central Valley, California. And I was curious, what is this adaptation of FOGO in California? And so that was the piece. I, I'm sorry, I don't, I'm jumping through a lot of things for folks. No, who that's are listening. okay. Yep. Okay. <laughs> you know, the FOGO process was a Canadian experiment in communi communicative filmmaking, you know, participatory filmmaking, and um, associated with the Newfoundland Project and Challenge for Change and the National Film Board of Canada. This was launched for people who don't know, Colin Lowe and Donald Snowden. And I knew about this because I, I was a student of George Stoney's and, you know, the two best classes I took as undergrad was yours and George Stoney, uh, Documentary Traditions, my senior year. And um, and so I knew that and I was curious about what the story was there. But I mean, the lo long story short here, the reason I'm connecting this here, when you talk about my positionality, yeah. at the heart of that book was in some ways... It's amazing to ver verbalize this, by the way. <laughs> it's been in my head for so long. You oh, write things down and we don't socialize and talk too much about this stuff. But at the heart of it, you ask this question. At the heart of it is a critique of the liberal advocate. You know, and at the heart of it is a kind of um, just the presumptuousness of white advocacy and positioning yourself as a kind of passive presence yeah. as an agent, but also a refractive presence that can be more you than you, right? And I, again, I don't know if this might be a little abstract, but really the book became a critique of that um, um, white privilege, um, 
uh, arrogance, maybe. I, I don't want to be too harsh either because I also admire the filmmakers too in some ways. But I saw in, in that a, um, a ricochet or a reflection of even my own position as a researcher, you know? So I, 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 in some ways there are moments in that book where I feel like I'm critiquing myself <laughs> and I, I was an organizer, by the way, I, you know, I met my wife, we were organizers. Um, I, I was organizer for one year. I, you know, I, I did my best, she kept going, but, um, in many ways, you know, I, I was reflecting on that experience too, through others. And I think that came, came through in that book. Um, and I, I don't know how to write about documentary without talking about race, without talking about the arrogance of that outsider coming in and critiquing that dynamic. Um, so that, that's what your question touches on to me. That really was kind of um, when you work your way through it, you know, that's really kind of at the heart. And I think that's a consistent theme in all those chapters in there. Again, I, um, I have huge respect for these filmmakers and um, a lot of deep affection for George Stoney and the work that I write about in there and Colin Lowe's work. I got to meet Colin Lowe and I was in his home, you know, for mm. six hours, you know, uh, interviewing him, being fed food, <laughs> You know, so, I mean, I, I have a lot of um, love and respect, but also I think ultimately if you, the thing you trace through is a critique of that liberal advocate and that um, belief that you can both be an agent and a refractive presence coming in from the outside. And that, that was what was going on in that chapter too, is out, DC outsiders, you know, Canadian outsiders yeah. funded by DC coming in there, so white savior complex just yes. to on george stoney whom you rightly revere and this is not to say one can't criticize some of what george did yes. he was an incredible person and maybe the most or amongst the most generous intellectuals and generous filmmakers i've ever met yes uh, a remarkable person and i'm very glad that you speak of him in the way that you do so, Prof, before getting on to the, the activism book, um, I wanted to go back to what you said about the digital. Mm. It's so tempting when so much is now digitized in terms of scholarly work, but also archives, not to go and kick up dust. Yes. Wear thin white gloves. <laughs> Talk to elderly folk and this is a problem in my opinion for journalism for cultural research and especially for history and ethnography although both of those things are holdouts against accepting nothing but the digital yes so you were wonderfully reflexive in your brief earlier comments on this. I wonder if you might speak to us a bit more about the seduction of the digital versus the seduction of the archive and the interview. Yes. I, I understand the seduction of the digital. I mean, we're talking, if I can briefly go back to the first book for a second, mm. to get to the to find the films that I was just speaking about, I just as a, as a, an aside, um, 
they were definitely not digitized. They were locked away mm. in a closet in Trinity College. And I spent maybe three hours on the phone with a professor who's connected to that to earn the trust to then fly out <laughs> and go in the, a closet, watch these films there, take notes and then get kicked out. So um, that was pressure. And I definitely appreciate <laughs> the digital archive and the affordances of it. And also I'm trying to, you know, think through this notion of time too, like having, you know, Laura Mulvey talks about delayed time, d- delayed cinema, I think, you know, in her book, but also just having that extended time of something where you spend time with it, you come back to it, and, as opposed to just this immediate, um, you know, 20 minute window go, you know, and um, so I definitely appreciate it. I also appreciate it. I mean, to be a, a little personal here, too, you know, um, I'm immunocompromised, right? So, um you know, COVID hit me hard. I was in the hospital for, you know, six days, you know, to, to recovering from that. So there's um, no doubt an appeal because it feels safer in the in the wake of the pandemic, which is not over, you know. And so I, I 100% understand that. Um, and I share the enthusiasm and I participated in you know, Mark Williams is very kind. I participated in a workshop where they we talked about um, the work he's doing with the Media Ecology Project and all of that, and it was all enthusiasm. But, but I was I was um, actually I apologize to Mark about this later because I felt like I was a little uncomfortable with just celebrating the utility of it without talking about where it comes from, how it gets there, the mm. problems with it. I mean, you can have videos that actually I can't hear or see very well. They're, they've been they've been on tapes that were digitized, that were mixed with other things. They cut in, they cut out. Um, you worry about access. You also have to find things too. So it's hard to find. I mean, Mark's doing a great job finding a way to centralize this so people can actually find the stuff a little bit more easily. But... Um, I I worry about taking for granted the labor that gets put there. I feel like if, um, I'm going to reproduce some of the very inequalities if I don't step back and actually look at where it comes from. Um, so I really think it's a big mistake to not... Uh, and again, this is a theme in the activism book too, is, you know, is to... It's ironic. In some ways, we are media scholars, but... I, I, we, you know, I don't want to um, only look at the object of analysis. You know, I want to understand how it's embedded, and that's got to include the preservation. It's got to include some of the archival processes into that conversation. And again, mm-hmm. I have to. Th- these are things I felt, but I also I think were really well articulated by Catherine Guru in Bad Film Histories. You know, that salvaging impulse. You know, to kind of think past that and come up with historiographies that speak to our moment a bit more is sort of a a challenge, you know? So I don't know if that's good. 
I appreciate it. I wasn't aware of your health situations, and I greatly appreciate your sharing those with us because that's one more area where the digital becomes, in some ways, a boon. Yes. Those for whom interaction in the communal public space is problematic um, and, and where access to medication or to home care rather than massive amounts of transportation is crucial. And I regret very much that you suffered so much during what is, as you say, an ongoing crisis. It's just that it's not acknowledged as such. Isn't. Yeah. Which is unbelievable, but um, it's incredible. Yeah. But it doesn't, um, it doesn't take away the value of being there, being on site. And I think that there was wisdom in, Mark Williams asking me to focus on actually he was really you know uh, I'm sure he doesn't mind me saying this you know he was very um, polite and said we invite you to write about this might I suggest the South Florida holdings (laughs) you know and I think that was a very um, polite way to nudge me and I think that was the way to go is to say yes this is digital but this is in your backyard. So let's make that connection. And I think that there was more to that suggestion probably than he was sharing. And I think he was right to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's territorialize this a little bit. So um, I'm thankful for that. And even though it's, you know, I have to take other things into consideration with travel, but the fact that it's, you know, in my backyard means I can go to the places I can go to Ocean Ridge, you know, I can go to Delray Beach, I can um, speak with the archivists at the Delray uh, Beach Historical Society, and so on. So it, it actually is, it works out well. And I do give him credit for doing that. And I think there's a great virtue in focusing on local questions, even as one does so with an internationalist eye. Yes. I think that's that's very important. So, Prof, before we get on to the activist book, which I keep saying we'll get on to and then I defer it, <laughs> could I ask you about documentary? Sure. Because if we go back, 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 as they say in baseball commentary, the notion of the documentary coming to an end is something that's been said since it began since it was understood as such. But especially since, I would say, reality television. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the same way as many people date that as a beginning of the end for investigative journalism, journalism more generally, and so on. Such that the only documentaries that are seen now are nature documentaries or something on the Hitler channel. <laughs> as as it is popularly known in the US, the History Channel. Yes. And yet, and yet, there is an extraordinary wealth of documentary filmmaking, film understood very broadly, going on that in some ways is cheaper to create and to distribute than mm-hmm. ever before. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if I might ask you to reflect on those antinomies, those debates, those senses that you know we go back speaking of the white savior 60 or 70 years 
And we have in the U.S. context, the Canadian context, the Maisels brothers, Pennebaker, Peacock, George, Frederick Wiseman, and so on, right? Sort of gifted, brilliant white auteur, mostly, I think, straight men. Yes. And what do we have today? So there's different ways to approach this. Um, So on one hand, I'm I'm trying, I'm trying to remember the authors. Um, I think Joshua Green, um, focusing on YouTube, perhaps. Um, It's one way of approaching this is that we've gone from, like you say, the uh, tour driven documentary culture to a much more fragmented um, media sphere. Um, I, one of the concepts that I cultivate, I don't know if it was an awkward phrase that I tried to use in projecting race. I also tried to suggest a meta narrative in that book that I don't know if it was successful or not, but it has stayed with me is this gradual pivot towards what I call a documentary from below, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. So mm-hmm. that, the, again, these are vulgar genera- generalities. That's, <laughs> what the, what, that's what this podcast is all about, Prof. <laughs> okay. You I would say this to my students, all right. You, you wouldn't be welcome here if you were not engaging in at least a few vulgar generalities. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so here we go. All right, all right, all right. So, <laughs> so um, what I suggest is there's a kind of slow-moving um, push towards more and more participation, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, that, you know, again, vulgar generalization here, but post-war documentary high skepticism towards the classical approach, voice of God, exposition, that it leaves out more that it includes. It's not open to the reality that's unfolding in front of the camera, that the verite and direct cinema, whatever you want to call it, participatory observational, that while these can be opposed epistemologies, they also share a critique of that classic mode mm-hmm. through by fracturing it, centering participation, being a little more unpredictable, observational, perhaps being open to what unfolds, although, of course, that's mitigated by editing and choice of subject and so on. So I feel like there's been an ongoing, slow moving move towards more and more participatory forms Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. engagement. So, you know, rather than just seeing a complete sea change from, you know, like I think you said reality, right? Reality TV, you know, I feel like, the way we've seen a slow moving splintering or fragmenting of um i don't know um of views of the world like it's more less monolithic breaking down mm-hmm. the expository approach has splintered when i i've been teaching students 
for documented for a while now and they they really respond to all these new modes of documentary so there's idocs interactive documentaries there's an interesting kind of gamification of documentary going on you know which now involves which is a strange phenomenon it involves the participation of of the, the the viewer is now a user um so you know so students really respond to that so i think that's one other sort of pivot is as it's moving forward you have this mm. kind of gamification mm-hmm. i mean yeah. also there's also literally i did write a, a short essay about this there is literally of course um empathy games um, games where you uh, the designers themselves express their own feelings about the world through the, the game design. The rise of indie games means that game engines can be authorial. They're not just a group design, but they can be authorial um, and have that autobiographical registration. A lot of feminist designers have been doing that. That led to the reaction of Gamergate and so on. So yeah, so how do, what is it today? I feel like it's this documentary from below that's just we keep moving that way, um, where the screen yields to what's in front of it, but also yields the des- the desires of the user, um, and so the students are sort of jazzed by this. So we just spent a lot of time mm-hmm. kind of talking about iDocs and 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 some of these other digital forms. So I think, like you said, on the one hand, this does allow for uh, multiplicity of perspectives, multi-perspectival kind of approach to the the world, but also what we lose perhaps is a sense of orientation, you know, too, sometimes. Um, we maybe um, can feel lost, if that makes sense, or feel alienated. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, to talk know. about both opportunity and fragmentation, if you like. Yeah. That your students get from you a perspective that allows for these really wonderful auteurs from the past that we mentioned, amongst many others, who, for all that one could criticize what they did, really wanted to show stories that were being hidden from the US public. Yes. Really yeah. being hidden in remarkable ways. Right. Uh, but also the the value that comes from saying, well, let's know about Voice of God narration or Cinema Verité. Let's know about George Stoney. Let's know about the Maisels. <laughs> but let's also know about not only the many women and people of color making documentaries in the United States and elsewhere, but also the contemporary moment of a technological reframing of the very concept of the documentary. Yes. And yeah. and what it can include right. without being too precious about the past. I think that's incredibly valuable. So, yes. Prof, before we get on to anything else, I've got some other questions. The activism book. Let's do it, <laughs> buddy. Let's get there. Uh, your, your wonderful collaboration on yes. activism. Yes. So, can I just give you a shout out because you you – You've just done so many over your career, so many wonderful collaborations. And I, there needs to be more collaboration in our field. Um, I, so to me, this was, this book was a wonderful opportunity 
to center other voices, to be part of a collective enterprise. And it was one of the, it's, that's, I'm really proud of that book. Um, oh, you should be. It's wonderful. Insurgent, insurgent, insurgent. <laughs> uh, uh, hashtag insurgent. No, <laughs> just kidding. Um, so no, Chris Robade, my um, colleague, uh, dear friend and researching partner, um, you know, we have always been unsatisfied with the way media activism is written about and talked about both in film and media studies, as well as in communication studies. Um, this was something that drew us together. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of my PhD studying NGOs and youth media organizations. That was also thanks to George Stoney and Chris Bay has been publishing books on radical media activism now for a little while. So we set out to do that. Um, again, the, the probably the manifesto impulse here was to challenge the tendency within media studies to center the media object, to abstract it from communities, from history, from organizations, from cultures. And so we wanted to make sure that we, you know, offered a volume that presented research that that actually was able to situate the media active subject into some kind of context. Um, you know, the flip side is comm studies is good, but there's a tendency on the comm studies side to not be as historical or maybe have a more limited historical lens. Um, and sometimes as an awkward way of, um, awkward manner of engaging the aesthetic to or engaging medium specificity, not not to fetishize those things, but they are sort of important. So I was trying to find, you know, we, and we, you know, Chris and I, we are in a unit that combines communication studies, film and media. So it's really interesting. I didn't really grasp this as a grad student, but working in a unit with all these disciplines together is really an interesting challenge because mm. you, mm. you, I mean, we, we talk about interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary, but also there are real differences too. And we're all wired a little bit different. So that's kind of been an interesting experience. Yes. yes. <laughs> you know, I don't think I really fully grasped that until you know, I was out of the cocoon of the, of grad school, you know, working in, in this unit. But um, so it speaks to our experience, I think, too, of trying to merge these a little bit more. Um, and we knew there was, there were people doing great work, obviously, you know, um, but we just want to center that more and try to pull that together into a volume. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the first thing I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And, um, yeah. Can you help us with the notion of insurgency in this context? Yes. So obviously we were, uh, you know, I, there's other scholars too. Hannah Burdett comes to mind. She wrote a book called Insurgent Poetics, very much about indigenous media, uses it in a similar way. I think for us, the insurgent had at least a couple of, me um, two primary meanings. I mean, there's obviously a lot of it. I didn't want to, Chris was not, we were, we're not as interested in theorizing this completely. You know, I think that was like a conversation we were having is how, 
<laughs> how deep do we go in theorizing this? You know, Chris is like, nah, let's get on to the, you know, get on to the case studies, you know, but, um, but I think for us generally, and we wrote this in the book that obviously, you know, for us, insurgent means counter hegemonic in some ways, you know, challenging inequities on a variety of fronts, racial, gender, sexuality, so on and so forth. So it has that counter hegemonic meaning, but it's a reminder too of the notion of time and speed too, that very often activist media is a kind of immediacy to it, at least in aim, that it's designed to have an impact, that the point is not the, you know, it's not, these are not discrete artistic objects, right? So they, they function within a kind of process, a community and organization and with goals in mind, you know? And so I think for us, cultivating a kind of posture towards these works means remembering the circumstances circumstances under which they're made um that they're designed to to have an impact on some mm. level and that our assessment of them should not you know should should take that into account um i think also that doesn't that comes with some negatives obviously i mean sometimes analysis suffers if you need to address something immediately Sometimes you need to appeal to emotion rather than just pure cognition or whatever in order to mm. you know, persuade mm. people or intervene or right. you know, do things clumsily, quickly, you know, in order to make it happen. I mean, um, so, you know, people's lives are at stake, right? So, I mean, you're going to do something that has an impact that may not be as, um, a, a, I don't know, I mean, celebrating it or fetishizing for their aesthetics does not take into account this issue of time and timeliness. So that was another piece of it. Um, uh, so yeah, it was important for us that the anthology was transnational in orientation, mm -hmm. does center indigenous media. I'm very proud of the fact that this anthology incorporates, um, this is the other thing too, is really trying to, unsettled borderlines between academics and practitioners. Um, not that it's always the same or everybody has to do everything, but just to have conversations. So the idea that this volume would be a place where academics and practitioners, their voices all commingle, um, as well as activists too. And, and that kind of blurs the line. I mean, a Alexandra Zhuhas is such a... Um, a hero <laughs> to, to both of us. And so really proud to have um, several contributions from her in here too, involving dialogue too. So what we also liked is some of the pieces are not just essays. They're also dialogues, transcripts of conversations, round tables, the, you know, playing with the format, Beautiful. having some variation, you know, I mean, this is something, I mean, just, it doesn't have to be digital to be interactive. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, so, um... well, you know, um, one thing Wiseman once said to me, he said, name dropping, not Fred, <laughs> but me, was that, or maybe he wrote this and I just read it, but he might have said yeah. it to me. When he was filming Meat, which is, mm. you know, an astonishing indictment of the abattoir world of the United States and not just the United States. He has this great remark along the lines of, I was asked by people, did you become a vegetarian because of what you witnessed? 
And he said, oh, no, no, I always ate a good steak each night, often somebody I'd met earlier in the day. And I think there is an importance to get away from purism. And, of mm -hmm. course, the other thing, I should say that when I screened some of Wiseman's films, sometimes I did have to warn students beforehand because of the graphic mistreatment of people and other animals that he documents. Yes, yes. And that had a profound physical effect on me, for example, the first time I saw them. But that to one side, getting back to insurgency, mm -hmm. it's got a different meaning since January the 6th, 2021. Because what used to be fairly comfortably thought of as occupied terrain for the progressive left in terms of yes. gender, race, disability, class, politics, and so on, i.e. activism, has seen the politics of spectacle not necessarily secured but successfully contested by the right mm -hmm. and to the point where just as during the Trump presidency many of us became fans of the CIA and the FBI, so insurgency is yes. a very complicated word for us to use. Yes. Agreed. Um, sorry, I know. No, no. That was a question. That was, <laughs> yeah, no, it that is. Was a bit, it a is. bit of mansplaining, wasn't it? That was a question without no. a question. But I wondered on, you know, on reflection about the use of that word and how easily it can be deployed now by the progressive forces that you brought together in that notable volume. Yes. Um, it's something that's another, uh, you know, I probably could have opened this whole podcast with that issue when you mentioned what's troubling you, <laughs> you know, is this appropriation of, of left discourses, social change by the sort of alt-right, you know, right-wing populism and fascism, whatever you want to call it, you know? Mm. Um, I also, my, my feeling is too, this is not, it's not new too. I think in some ways the right learns from the left, Will, will appropriate certain kinds of discourses around, you know, um, you know, critique of ideology, or they'll, they'll seize on certain things. I mean, you see this with students too, like they'll sort of seize on certain ideas of the left and they apply it in these ways that are a little backwards, but you could see where they're appropriating it. Um, I think for me, um, you know, I think for us, you know, the, this speaks to why it's important to not fetishize the media objects so much either too, is to actually keep it embedded in terms of, or consider these media objects in terms of social movements and like keep it in context, not fetishize that. So I think that's another way to create some distinction around how they're appropriating these terms or these ideas versus what real insurgency is, if that makes sense. But um you know, I also think uh, it's also a symptom of inequality in this country, too. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, right, a deep symptom of, you know, I, I studied under Bertel Ullman. <laughs> and then what you read is alienation, you know. I mean, right. um, deep... And create, creator of the board game Class Warfare. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um <laughs> And uh, yeah, his, he he held a press conference when he when he launched the game, and he he, he made class strudel uh, to serve to the reporters. 
Oh, I didn't know um, that. That's a wonderful story. But I, I think, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think uh, the January 6th protest, these are people obviously deeply, I mean, obviously it's white nativism, deeply entrenched in this country, but also deeply alienated people who are suffering, right? I mean, in light of the recession, and I don't want to reduce everything to those material conditions, but um there's a broader materialist critique to be brought to bear there. And I also, I, I didn't want to bring this up too, because it's sort of unfolding. I did write an essay on the, um, the January 6th um, impeachment and some of the use of the digital evidence in that used in that. And, you know, in trying to both, you know, I sympathize with that, but also understand that, there's still a lot of structural social questions that are left off the table that we're not able to wrap our arms around, even as we're dealing with the immediate fire of this insurrection. So um, I think that broader materialist critique is always what's needed. You know, when we get lost a little bit, like, well, there's insurgents for insurgents. I think if we can kind of keep that broader materialist picture, we don't get as, we don't feel as disoriented. That's that's my best stab at that. That's no, that that's great. That's a wonderful answer because it's something I've been pondering, trying to understand a lot, and you've helped me just there. So, Prof, I've got a couple more questions for you, and then I'd like to throw it to you to add anything to what we've already discussed. Is that okay? That sounds great. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> uh, and my God, by mentioning George and Bertel, you've actually made my day because they were people who were colleagues whom I adored, didn't know all that well mm -hmm. and hold in reverence. So thank you for that. So my <laughs> first right. question is, as you said, you're recovering from quite a lengthy period as a pretty senior administrator. Yes. And I wanted to ask you about the experience of doing that, not to tell tales about Florida Atlantic, although by all means, feel free. <laughs> but in all seriousness, to ask you about what that's like. And I ask this partly because many friends of mine who've gone into senior administration have found it very difficult to return to teaching and research. Yes. Um, I, try, I might need to get my therapist over here. <laughs> so it is. I, I I will say too, uh, and it, this is my experience. I'm not speaking for anybody else. Mm -hmm. Okay. But too often, even just as a, you know, as an, a faculty member, I feel like the two things that I almost never talk about through my job is my teaching and my research. You know, it seems as if more and more administrate, even if you're not a quote unquote administrator, administrative tasks are just befalling all of us. And we're just constantly doing administrative tasks. And that constitutes easily 90% of what we talk about and what we do. I feel like I rarely get to talk about teaching and research. And so even if you're not an administrator, it's really 
I mean, at least in my experience at my institution, and I've only ever been at my institution, you know, as a faculty member. So I just trying to couch that. So, um, so yeah. And when I was, you know, serving these administrative tasks, of course, it was even um, more difficult. And I also think too, you start to feel as if you're falling behind and you kind of throw your hands up and say, well, I guess this is what, I'm doing now, you know, and so it's really, so, you know, I guess what I'm saying is I also even feel that more and more as a faculty member too. It's very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 you know, I've served on, um, I've done reviews for Ford, you know, uh, interdisciplinary panel. And, um, and I think I was at the time, you know, I guess I'm supposed to pop a champagne bottle. Apparently FAU is finally now an R1. I guess for my whole entire time, we've been R2. Um, but I remember serving on these panels and, you know, and hearing people make the distinction about being at a service heavy R1 versus not. And, and an R2 is like a whole nother level, you know. So um, it's hard to find that support for research too, especially the kind of research as we were talking about that, that I do involves travel, involves going places, and the capital you need, the money you need to go into that. Yeah, just, yeah. And, and just for some too. context, if I could interrupt for a moment, Prof. Yeah, it's fine. R1 and R2, Research 1, Research 2 are categories that are in the hierarchy of U.S. colleges that grant doctorates, basically. And right. if you research one, then you're of much greater standing. The other thing that's very germane compared to many other countries is that for better or worse, it's very difficult to get governmental research funds in the humanities and the social sciences, apart from, to a certain extent, political science, sociology, and anthropology. So it's very tough for communication studies, and it's very tough for film studies or media studies to get that support if it's not intramural you know, right. from within the institutions, block grant or whatever, or from foundations, private right. foundations. It's much more difficult to yeah. do what you're doing than it would be at a a university in Canada or right. the UK, for example. Yeah. Yes. Sorry to interrupt, but just to make that point about, no. about yeah. how funding for in-depth historical and ethnographic research is incredibly tough to get. Yes. Yes. So it, it's, it's, it's hard on multiple fronts. I felt it was hard, really hard as an administrator and it's still even hard when you're uh, even as an instructor, which was bizarre. Um, but um, yeah. So anyway, more and more, it feels like we're just constantly engaged in administrative tasks. Yeah. I'm trying to think of what else you were asking. No, uh, I was asking, I was wondering about the transition back to being a faculty member, but the point that you've made is that it's not actually such a big transition. No. <laughs> because surveillance of faculty has gotten to such a point that the necessity to justify your existence and to explain what you do instead of doing it has been ratcheted up for everybody. Yes. For everybody. Yeah. That's, That's right. what I hear. And the That's number right. of jobs that are taken in universities, both private and public, both in the United States and elsewhere, by people who do not do much teaching and do not do much research 
and have no evidence of ever having been good at either is astonishing, as is their salaries. And <laughs> yes. just a lot of evidence of this. And I'm not talking <laughs> about Florida Atlantic here. I'm talking about everywhere. Yes. Right? It's astounding. Absolutely. More and more and more power accreting to less, to, to more and more incompetent people. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Who are basically professional finger waggers. Right. Not that I have any kind of problem with any of this personally, clearly. But my last question before throwing it over to you is to ask you about how you go about things. And you've given us some clues in terms mm. of physical archives and digital mm -hmm. archives mm -hmm. and going and talking to people. Mm-hmm. And textual analysis. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming those are the main things. Let me know if that's not right. But could, could you also tell us a wee bit about learning how to talk to people you don't know? I was deeply impressed by your spending all that time talking to the Episcopalians. I guess that's what they are at Trinity College, despite having the disadvantage of your last name, which I'm sure, they, <laughs> which I'm sure meant they immediately mistrusted you. <laughs> Um, so it was, you know, I have to, uh, credit in a way, you know, my education, I mean, your class, George Stoney, and you know, when I took George Stoney's class, it was the version of documented traditions where he would bring a different documentarian every week, you know, into class and have a dialogue you know, uh, William Greaves, you know, D.A. Penny Baker. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and so the, you know, watching the films, it, George's Q&A, um, it was just a wonderful um, introduction to doing oral history, ethnography, all at the same time. And I remember going to George and said I wanted to study the Workers Film and Photo Workers uh, uh, Film and Photo League, uh, Depression Era Workers Collective, and he said, "Great, go talk to Leo." And he gave me the phone number of Leo Seltzer, who was a cameraman with the Workers Film and Photo League. <laughs> and so I called up Leo. I said, "George sent me to you," and he said, "Okay." And I went to Leo's home in Manhattan sat with him for, you know, two hours while he rattled off stories to me and I wrote a paper. And then I remember, um, you know, it was very rare to get comments on papers actually, but he wrote, but George wrote, you know, so glad you got to talk to Leo. And I think that just set a tone for me about what, how exciting it was to study media in that fashion, you know, and it did combine oral history, talking to people and, and just calling people up. I mean, you know, again, my, my colleague, Christopher Bay does this really well too. Um, people are excited usually to talk about what they do and it gives a whole new perspective. And it just, when you go, I have then, then written things that are just textual analysis and it's, it, um, I, I think it's productive. I think it's okay, but it, it feels like I'm missing something and it feels um, limited. So it's much more fulfilling when you can get more registers, you know, 
the Amazon. Well, the things need to be combined, in my view. Yes. If you don't say something about the material properties of the film, its pictures, its sounds, etc., or lack thereof, yeah. then why write about it? Right. But if you can't situate it in terms of its makers and its audience and the institutions that encrust it, right. then also why do it? So I, I do right. think that's a wonderful contribution. So, Prof, now that you've revealed some secrets and we've again got to speak about George, um, which, yes. again, is warming my heart, <laughs> would you conclude for us by saying whether there are things we've not discussed that you'd like to mention or that you wish we hadn't discussed? <laughs> <laughs> delete. Just delete, delete the whole thing. No. Delete. Delete. Ah, out of control. <laughs> get me out of hell. <laughs> no, what I want to say here is I want to thank you for making this a priority, doing this podcast. I know this is labor too, and it means a lot to me. I learn a lot from your conversations. This is not, you don't have to be doing this. So I also, I love the podcast form when it's involves these kinds of dialogues. So, and I think more academics should do what you're doing with this. So it's very inspiring. And I like, I, I just like the public face, the way that you engage these conversations. And, you know, the other, I was, you know, academia can be very alienating. So this is um, a wonderful kind of counter to that. So that's kind of what I wanted to say here. At the well, end. Thank you very much. It's been a great privilege and an honor <laughs> to speak to you. Let's not leave it another X thousand years, right? Ten years. <laughs> yeah. All Sounds right. good, Toby. It was a real honor. Thank you so much. Thank you.